Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by David French, Steve Hayes, and Jonah Goldberg. We've got a lot to talk about today, a lot in the news. We're going to start with the ouster of Liz Cheney as the number three Republican in the House, talk about the rise of independence in our electorate, the colonial pipeline hack, and finally, hostilities escalating in Israel. Let's dive right in. Steve, to you first. Um, Wednesday morning, Liz Cheney was uh, ousted from her position as the number three Republican in the House GOP conference. Nobody is surprised by this. Uh, It was, uh, as we speculated last week, uh, it was done by voice votes so that there was not an actual tally of votes for and against keeping Cheney in her position, but fair to assume that the result was overwhelming. Uh, She was strongly opposed by, in the end, by Kevin McCarthy, the House GOP leader, Steve Scalise, the number two in the House Republicans. Donald Trump was putting out um, statements calling for her to be uh, purged. And you had others who have long uh, opposed Cheney sort of rallying people to cause. Cheney herself did not whip to... um, to get people to support her in this vote. I think she understood that uh, she was on her way out and that the position would be difficult for her to hold given her views on Donald Trump and the election lies. Um, My question is actually a bigger picture question. We've talked quite a bit about, uh, about this battle, about um, what it means for house Republicans, about what it means uh, or what it tells us about Kevin McCarthy's leadership. I'm interested in a, in a question about the broader uh, comment that this is on Republicans and Donald Trump. There was a period in the days after January 6th where it looked as if the Republican Party and its leaders were ready to make a pretty clean bit break from Donald Trump. You had both Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy blame Trump directly for what happened on January 6th. You had even Trump allies like Lindsey Graham saying that he was out. Enough was enough. Time to move on. And in the time that's elapsed since, that's all changed. So my question to you, and I'll start with you, David, is the Republican Party more a Trump party today than it was on November 4th, the day after the election? (laughs) And is it more of a Trump party today than it was on January 7th? Oh, I think the latter, it's definitely more of a Trump party than it was January 7th. Now, I think the thing that that is particularly disturbing is that I don't think at the grassroots it was less of a Trump party on January 7th, which is why ultimately the Washington wing of the party uh, became more Trump, more Trumpy between January 7th and now, if that makes sense. In other words, January 6th, didn't necessarily really shake the grassroots that much. Uh, in fact, you know, I was talking to somebody who's quite plugged into local GOP politics, and I think I've said this before, folks are mad at Marsha Blackburn um, for not being sufficiently supportive of Donald Trump. Marsha Blackburn, okay? So what ended up happening, I think, is that 
there was an ev- this terrible event occurs on January 6th. A lot of people in Washington were shaken by it. A lot of people who are maybe not necessarily deeply, deeply connected to Republican politics at their grassroots were shaken by it. But the grassroots was all in and the grass and the immediate the, you know, immediately a victim narrative spun out of January 6th, which was, you know, at one end was that this was Antifa and another end that this is this was not nearly as bad as the as the riots and protests of the summer or that the law enforcement is treating them disproportionately poorly. And so essentially what happened, I think it's the same level of Trumpiness from November 3rd to 4th to January 6th to 7th to right now. And the Washington part of the GOP has realized that. And this is the result. So, Sarah, picking up on that, if you think about the position of Donald Trump in the Republican Party today, you you don't have the same Republican leaders speaking out against him or criticizing him at all. Kevin McCarthy talks to him on a regular basis. Now, House Republicans have made it very clear that they intend to put Donald Trump at the center of their uh, efforts to retake the House in the fall of 2022. Uh, Senate Republicans, Mitch McConnell has been quieter. He has not restated his previous support for Liz Cheney. Um, I think his decision has been a tactical one that much better to let, to, to not talk about Trump, to talk. He said when he was asked about this last week in Kentucky, he said, I'm going to focus 100% of my attention on Joe Biden and what Joe Biden is doing. Um, is, is that likely to work? Seems to me that Republicans have tried for five years to ignore what they don't like about Donald Trump. And he's arguably more powerful now, just in pure partisan terms, maybe that any, at any point in his time in Republican politics. I'm going to disagree. And I'm going to tell you the silver lining of what is going on. And it's not just a silver lining. I actually think it's like a yellow brick road. So yes, I, it's not that anything you've said is false, but it's the opening that it it has provided, you know, last week I talked about the Chip Roy caucus and we had a statement from Chip Roy come out where he basically said, Liz Cheney's forfeited the right to be in leadership. She keeps harping on Trump. That's not helpful. It's not unifying. We have members who, you know, are endorsed by Trump. It undermines that it creates all these news cycles at the same time. You can't have the number three in the conference be someone who's not conservative, uh, basically saying he was not going to support Elise Stefanik to replace Liz Cheney. There is now uh, reporting today that he is going to challenge Elise Stefanik for that number three position. So here's my view of what's happening right now. You have the Republican Party that we knew it was going to be in a difficult place. They can't and won't Uh, disown Trump. And by the way, I don't think it would work if they did. I think that the Liz Cheney model is unworkable and it is not the future of the Republican Party as much as some people may want it to be. It's just not. It's not where the voters are. It's not where a lot of the House members are. Uh, At the same time, you have the sort of triple down folks. I'll put Elise Stefanik as the leader of that, who are also backward looking, by the way. She's endorsed the Arizona bamboo recount audit um, that is just Silliness, it's also a distraction (laughs) in equal terms. To me, this has created an opening that conservative Republicans should be cheering, which is the Chip Roy caucus. Chip Roy uh, has said all along that the election was not rigged, that there was nothing 
untoward about uh, Donald Trump losing. He has put his money where his mouth is, put you know resolutions on the floor to that effect. He voted against impeachment, but said that it was really because the impeachment itself, Nancy Pelosi had sort of uh, jerry-rigged that so that it was not on impeachable offenses in his view. He wants to move on from Trump. He wants to do it in the most conservative way possible. He's been very policy focused this whole time. This creates a real opening for the Chip Roy caucus. The conservatives who are not anti-Trump, but who are actually conservative. I think uh, I think he is likely to lose if he challenges Elise Stefanik, possibly on Friday. But he may lose the battle and win the war here. And if the future of the Republican Party is Chip Roy or the Chip Roy caucus that I'm calling it, that's good news for conservative Republicans and this whole thing will have looked like a necessary way to get there. So, Jonah, let's say that Sarah is right in purely practical terms. I I think I'll say nothing you said there is false, um, (laughs) but I think you might have cut some corners. Um, (laughs) Isn't it the case that if you're a true conservative um, for whom this opening uh, apparently now exists. You want to take a stand on something as fundamental as the rule of law. And what Chip Roy is trying to do is say, in effect, yeah, look, Donald Trump said this, but that's in the past. We can't really focus on the past and we've all got to move forward. I would say before I get to the question of you, Jonah, the, the problem with that is Donald Trump is not behaving that way. I mean, Donald Trump put out a statement two days ago in which he alleged that Michigan was fraudulently awarded to Joe Biden. He said votes will be uh, overturned in New Hampshire, in Wisconsin. He backed the Arizona bamboo audit. John Ward, um, who is a, a, a friend of the dispatch uh, and an author, writes for Yahoo News, put together a, a list of the times just recently. And I will not read them because uh, this, that would take the rest of this podcast. When Donald Trump has issued statements claiming a rigged election, March 20th, April 2nd, April 4th, April 5th, April 6th, April 12th, April 23rd, April 24th, four statements, April 26th, two statements, April 27th, on and on and on. Liz Cheney let most of those go, responded to the one where she called it a big lie. And beyond that, if you look at what Senate Republicans are doing, House Republicans are doing, they're not looking past Trump. They're putting Trump right at the center of everything that they do. The National Republican Senatorial Committee since April 24th has put out 97 emails that mention Trump. That's more than five every day mentioning (laughs) Trump as they raise money. It would be great to believe that somehow this is the rebirth of conservatism inside the Republican Party. I'm skeptical. Jonah, am, am I right or is Sarah? Um, you, have, you both have elements of your argument that have the benefit of not being false. That um, sounds like such a Kevin McCarthy answer. I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, look, I, 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 as I said last week, as I wrote in the Wednesday G-File and also last week's G-File, uh, I think the issue is only incidentally or symptomatically about the big lie stuff. Um, if Donald Trump were as obsessed 
you know, and look, I mean, this, as, as so many things of the last five years having to do with Trump, Trumpism is best understood as a psychological phenomenon, not as a political phenomenon and a, and a psychological phenomenon, both among his fans and with Trump himself. Trump cannot countenance the fact that he lost. It's a blow to his ego. And so he won't let this go. And he has a long history of not letting things go that make him look bad. You know, he is, as he says, he whines until he wins. And if we were in a parallel universe where the issue wasn't the election being stolen, but was instead his claim that he's the richest man in the world or that he's the most handsome man in the world or that um, a civilization of mole people living underneath the surface um, were responsible for his high tax rates or whatever it is, that would be the litmus test issue for all of these Republicans. And because it's really about um, not defying Donald Trump, the person, make, not making him look bad that um, all these people have to rally. Mo as, as I think we all agree, most of these Republicans in this caucus, you know, these closet normals, as I call them, um, they don't believe that the election was stolen. They're just not willing to say so very loudly because they don't want to piss off Trump. And I think that's the real dilemma. And where, where Liz Cheney got caught up is that she couldn't, she couldn't do the never Trumper act against Trump because she was never a never Trumper. She voted with him. She did. She was more loyal to his agenda than Elise Stefanik was. She just wasn't more loyal to the cult of personality. And then January 6th, I think she saw it as a useful means to separate the party from this cult of personality stuff. And she got screwed by a lot of people. I mean, you know, there's this, there's this old, um, gag in Abbott Costello, it's in stripes, right? Where you have these guys, these soldiers all lined up and they're asking, the sergeant asks for a volunteer and, or asks like, who's responsible for this. And like Bill Murray will like gesture that he's about to step forward and then not <laughs> do it. And then the other people step forward and they get screwed. That's what Mitch McConnell did to her. That's what a lot of people did to her. They, they signaled that there was this groundswell to say, okay, this is our moment. And if not for this, then what? And that's my concern is that, as I wrote in the G file, if, if, if I describe Donald Trump's first impeachment to Lindsey Graham in 2016 as a hypothetical scenario, he'd be like, that's outrageous. That's impeachable. And then I said, oh, and by the way, you'll be an abject head past the sphincter, ass kisser, apologist for all of it. He would be outraged and he would be sincerely outraged, right? And then the actual event comes by and because of a series of decisions that he has made where he has sold off pieces of his soul over the years and made these compromises, um, he had no choice but to follow through on that. And then you fast forward to the second impeachment. If I had described that even in 2020 to him and said, oh, by the way, he's going to get impeached again because he's going to lie about the election being stolen. He's going to try and steal the election through those lies. And he's actually going to incite a mob that storms the Capitol and tries to hang Mike Pence. He'd be like, no way would I ever support that. <laughs> and then, and that's not even speculation because we know that's true because right. like the day after the, the, the siege, he goes on the floor of the Senate and says, I'm done with the guy. And then of course he backtracks and is once again, Renfield. And I think that the, the problem with this Cheney thing, yes, it's overblown and yes, it's, it is inside politics or inside the beltway or inside baseball, whatever you want to call it. But it is another example of these little decisions that foreclose the ability to stand up to the guy down the road. Um, it is just, it's going to be like 
much less likely or possible for any of these politicians, including Chip Roy, to frontally criticize Trump's claims about the election being stolen or the next crazy thing that he wants to do. And to me, that's the disturbing thing is that we are now on, on this, we have this path dependence towards the party becoming essentially a personality cult. And it doesn't matter if everybody actually believes it. I mean, I think one of the most telling and damning things in this whole spectacle was that when Liz Cheney this morning was voted out, was defenestrated, she got a standing ovation from the conference. Which is crazy. It's just batty. And, um, but it just shows you that, that you can't get on the wrong, you, you can't do anything that cuts into Trump's self-esteem, to Trump's standing with the base. So yeah, I mean, Chip Roy might be able to push more conservative policies that defy Trumpism, but Trumpism, again, is not an ideological program. It's a psychological tendency. And I think it's just going to get worse before it gets better. I keep right. thinking of, well, Sarah, there's this quote from the French Revolution. Yes. Where are the people going yes. so that I may lead them? Yes. And this is constantly happening. I mean, this is the Washington GOP. It's not a leading edge indicator of where the GOP really truly is in its heart of heart. It's a trailing edge indicator. And when they got out and over their skis after January 6th, the grassroots snapped them right back. And so that's, I mean, I just think that's fundamentally where it is right now. And, and Sarah, before we get to your, I think this next topic that we're going to talk about uh, with you helps us get to a real explanation, I think, for, for a lot of this. But one of the, the, the just a final point for me, I'm, I'm so struck by the unwillingness of Republicans to confront the basic truth of the matter. I mean, if they can't sort of stand up to this, like, we know that, that the election wasn't stolen, right? I mean, that's what Donald Trump is saying. That was his statement on Michigan a couple of days ago. He gave a speech down at Mar-a-Lago a couple of weeks ago, which made the case that the election was stolen and it might be overturned still. Like this is <laughs> total battery. Like, this is craziness. And they won't stand up for him. I thought there was a, a moment last night when Liz Cheney got up to give her speech on the floor of the House and all but one of the Republicans present filed out as she prepared to, I think, tell them the truth of what happened. And we've seen this again and again and again. There was a political briefing that the Washington Post reported on over the weekend for House Republicans conducted by the National Republican Congressional Committee, which is charged with winning elections for House Republicans. And in this briefing, they withheld the slides that talked about how unpopular Donald Trump was in swing districts, just withholding the truth. You remember during the impeachment, you had senators and others look away when they played the video of the insurrection. Again, just withholding the truth, just a, a refusal to confront what what reality is. And I think that's that's going to be the, the long-term problem as much as anything. And I think it's directly related to what you want to talk about, Sarah. It is. I, I get the last word because it's my next topic. I think that <laughs> uh, Chip Roy is the future of the Republican Party, whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, all wow. right. So here's my topic. Pew does this, I mean, forever. They ask whether people identify as a Republican or a Democrat, or people can identify as independents. And in 2005, 2006, about a third of the country identified as each of those. 33% Republican, 33% Democrat, 33 independent. 
But today, over 40% say they're independent, while fewer than 30% say they're Republicans or Democrats. But that sounds like we should be moving into sort of a post-partisanship world, less polarized. And you look around, and that's clearly not the case. Why are so many people identifying as independents, and yet we feel more partisan than ever? Ah, because it's the next question. So 75% of those independents still vote exactly the same as they used to. (laughs) Yeah, they don't say they're Republican, but they vote straight ticket Republican. In fact, according to Pew, you can't tell the difference between an independent who leans Republican and someone who identifies as a Republican in their voting pattern. So here's the problem. As those people leave the party, they don't put up yard signs anymore. They don't attend the local county Democratic meeting. People like me no longer work at the RNC. And so the most strident partisans and the most extreme partisans rise and rise and become the voices of the party. So the parties move to the outer edges. But because those independents aren't changing their voting behavior, the parties aren't punished as they move to those extremes. So we have more independents and more polarization. And even worse, it's a vicious cycle because as the parties move to the extremes, more people leave the parties and it goes and goes and goes. So my question to you, Jonah, are we doomed? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Having just recorded a podcast with Neil Ferguson on his book, Doom, um, (laughs) I have thoughts. But uh, no, first of all, listeners should read uh, Sarah's edition of The Sweep, which covered a lot of this. It was very, very, better than usual, and it's usually very good. So it was a really great edition. Um, It's, so some of this stuff, you know, we've seen these trends for a little while now. I remember with the rise of the tea parties, where that was the first time you really saw lots of people who were real true blue conservative Republican types calling themselves independents because they had bought into sort of the Ted Cruz war on the establishment stuff. They didn't trust the party. They thought Boehner was a rhino or whatever. And so they start calling themselves independents, even though they were more Republican than most Republicans in, in the ways that really mattered and what they wanted from the Republican party. And, you know, uh, David's friend Yasha Monk, you know, has done some really interesting stuff about how basically, you know, it's sort of like an after-school special. It turns out the partisanship was in our hearts all along, um, <laughs> where an enormous number of people, and Jonathan Rausch has done some great stuff on this as well, too, where an enormous number of people who are Republican in terms of their voting behavior or their name or their affiliation or whatever actually hate their own party a great deal. Um, they just hate the other party more. And that's because as we've, uh, partly because of weak parties and this, and I think you're right about the catalytic effect that this process has to make the parties even weaker. Um, but part of it is that we have turned political orientation into a form of identity politics where um, it maps in many ways like a religion um, in terms of how it plays out in society. And they now social science, for the first time in, ever social scientists in recent years have found that there is more bigotry along partisan lines than there is along racial or ethnic or gender lines. Like they do these controlled tests where they give people resumes and they'll say, and they'll make the name on the resume, you know, obviously like African-American or Jewish or whatever. And they'll find a little anti-Semitism or a little, you know, uh, racism and that kind of stuff. But then they'll change it to like 
giving clear tells that someone is a Republican or a Democrat and it's off the charts bigotry. <laughs> and, um, and I, I don't know how you get out of this process without, first of all, having a lot of people come to their senses, but second of all, without strong parties, which actually care about their long-term brand identity, their long-term goals, their long-term integrity. And, um, and that requires things that I want to do, like getting rid of primaries, but it's going to be a long time coming. Steve, is this why the Republican party ousted Liz Cheney today? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, if you look at, you look at the, the number of districts and I don't have the exact number, uh, offhand, look at the 2020 elections in the house of representatives and the number of districts where Republicans won, but by less than five points, for instance. And compare that to the number of districts that Republicans won by 20 plus points. The fact that there are more of the latter help ex helps explain the problem. These Republicans in, you know, sort of reddish districts are worried about or swing districts are worried about uh, losing in a general election. Virtually everybody else in the Republican House is worried about being primaried. And they're worried about Donald Trump stepping in and endorsing a candidate who's Trumpier than they are and losing a primary and losing their seat. And I would say one of the things that I have, have underestimated, and you, I, I, I'm, happy to, um, I'm happy to accept the criticism that I was a naive Midwesterner for far too long, is just how much retaining um, their seats mattered to these members of Congress. Um, for me, my assumption was, was always that, you know, most of them, even if they took shortcuts or, or, um, did things for political expediency to win a seat or to, to retain a seat, you know, they were basically there to, to, to do the people's business. They were there because they were interested in these things. They wanted to improve the country in some kind of altruistic way. And, you know, bless your if, heart. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, now really like looking at what, what happened uh, today in the house, that just seems hopelessly naive. I mean, there are just very few people who would be willing to, to say, and I think, you know, Liz Cheney went in with eyes open on this. I want to lose my leadership seat and I could well lose my seat in Congress because these are the things I believe and we're in trouble. And I think that's what she did. I think there are just fewer and fewer people who are willing to do that. And, and that goes back, I think, to your, to your point, Sarah. You know, when you have so many people in, uh, so many Republicans who are elected in these just crimson red districts where really the only chance they could possibly lose their seat is if they lose a primary, the only way that they're going to lose a primary is if they sort of poke their head up and, and Trump comes to, to smash it. Um, that's what, that's why they're doing what they're doing. And it's a, this is a, a long-term conundrum for Republicans. I think it will probably help them in 2022, or at least not hurt them. Still expect that they'll, uh, take the majority in the house of representatives. I think the long-term, uh, prospects for this are entirely grim for the Republican party. David, I left the Republican party in 2018. Should I feel guilty about that? No, because, well, you, you should feel guilty that you left two years late. <laughs> <laughs> I, I left in 2016, Sarah. You're late to the party. 
But I'm totally not going to hold it against you because I want to thank you, my podcasting partner in crime, Advisory Opinions, the elite podcast of the Dispatch Podcast Network. You allow me to do what? Talk about my book eight months after the release. Um, And let me just quote Darth Sidious and say, all is unfolding as I have foreseen. I don't like that at all. If you skip to page 119, it doesn't go well. It does not go well. It does not go well. Let let me put it this way. This is negative polarization at work. This is hyperpartisanship at work. And this is what happens when you have this phenomenon where this this larger and larger group of people who are alienated from the day-to-day work of politics and alienated from the day-to-day news cycle are what are called by the More in Common Project, the exhausted majority, with the operative word being exhausted. And that doesn't mean they check out of politics entirely. They're still going to vote, and they're going to vote for whatever candidate has been served up by the hyperpartisan wings uh, from the party that they lean towards. But what's happening is, Sarah, you explained it perfectly. What you're seeing is even though independents are rising, partisanship is rising. Why? Because institutions are defined by the people who care the most about them. And the people who are caring most about our political process right now are the absolute most polarized hyperpartisans. That's exactly where we are right now. I'll, I, and, and until people who identify themselves as independents begin to behave in truly an independent fashion, I'm not sure that's going to change. I, I, I was um, talking with some of my friends around here who are not super political, but they were, they were kind of gobsmacked by the Stop the Steal stuff that was going on. They were gobsmacked by January 6th. And I, I remember talking to one of my friends, his, his dad was a, an area business, a, a pretty prominent businessman locally, really hard-nosed, not super partisan, but was a Republican. I said, what do you think your dad would think right now of all of this? And he said, he would think the Trump movement and all the Trump, true Trumpists were just ridiculous. I said, but would he vote Democrat or not vote at all? Oh no, he'd still vote Republican. <laughs> It's just that that's the identity. That's who you are. I mean, it's unthinkable, unthinkable. And I remember debating Eric Metaxas twice and um, in during the run up to the 2020 election. And this binary choice argument was made, binary choice, binary choice, binary choice. And when I was looking at the audience, the few audience members, because it was in the pandemic, when it got to the point where I was making an argument that you don't it's not binary. There's more than one name there, or you can write in a name. There was this kind of look of incredulity. Like that, that's just not what you do. You make a choice. And if you're Republican leaning, you're going to choose a Republican, no matter how upset you are about it. Um, and, I, and so what ends up happening is exactly what Sarah described. We get more polarized, even though more people describe themselves as independent, because the people who describe themselves as independent are not really independent and not super engaged. So it is left to the wings, and the wings are driving us to doom Neil Ferguson's book. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Jonah, let's get to the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a fascinating topic to me. It's amazing how quickly it has become. I should do a little background. What happened was a group, which is like, I kind of love because it's like straight out of a James Bond thing. I mean, like they they own the fact that they're villains and they even have a code of conduct about how they're villains. And they claim it's called Dark Side. I'm sorry, David. It's not Dark Seed, the ultimate villain in the Snyder Cut. Um, it's Dark Side. Disappointing. But um, they did a, a one of these, you know, hack jobs where they wanted to extort money from the colonial the owners of the Colonial Pipeline, which delivers 45 percent of gas and fuel um, to the Eastern Seaboard, and um, they insist that they are not working for Russia, but they do also say that they don't do any of this in former Soviet bloc countries, and which basically means that they are given, it's one of the reasons why it's very clear that they are given free reign by the Russian government to do their thing so long as they leave the Russian inter Russian interests alone. And um, I think the media coverage of it has been very strange because it is focused almost entirely on coverage of gas shortages, as if that's the most interesting part about this. And I understand that it affects people's lives, but it's not the most interesting part about this. It seems to me that this is a sort of a peek into the future of a lot of geopolitics and um, and not just in terms of geopolitics, but in terms of what the sort of stateless actor world is going to look like in the future. And um, I guess I'm going to start with a point of personal privilege because this is one of my obsessions as listeners of the most popular podcast in the Dispatch Universe, The Remnant Now. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm obsessed with this idea that the government should issue letters of mark to um, our own cyber, cyber privateers to deal with some of this stuff. Not only is it constitutional by precedent, it's literally in the Constitution. Um, and I would like to get David's take first on, on that or on what your main takeaway is from all of this, um, because there are people out there who think that this should be a wake-up call akin to 9-11, not because of the death toll, but because of what it portends for the future. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I continue and and let me let me uh, preface this by saying there I I there may well be things that we are doing that I don't know anything about that our government is engaged in that are quite effective in the cyber warfare arena. For example, we were quite effective in using cyber warfare allegedly in cooperation with the Israelis to delay and damage the Iranian nuclear program. So. Let me preface this by saying there's there's almost certainly stuff that I don't know here, but I will say that at the time for the time being, for the time being, it appears that we are a disproportionate recipient of problematic hackings, problematic cyber intrusions. And it does alarm me. And I think there's sort of two things at once that alarm me. One thing that you know you're talking about right now, this particular hacking that has had some very real world consequences. And then the other one, it's already forgotten. It's just totally forgotten, like it never happened. And that was in Nashville, the Christmas bombing that took out one AT&T node. And you would not have believed the state of communications in the Southeastern United States for several days. 
Um, and it, those two things together, when you have a cyber attack that leads to oil shortages that seem to happen with almost a casual amount of effort, and then a weirdo one single node attack on our communications infrastructure, and it takes out much of the Southeast's ability to communicate with each other, tells me that uh, if you actually had a determined hostile force, a, a, one of real capability, that we are not nearly as impregnable and vulnerable as we believe that we are. And so I don't think wake-up call on the order of 9-11, but wake-up call, absolutely yes. I mean, this is a strategic vulnerability, and it's a strategic vulnerability that's particularly distressing, given, given that I would say we have the best tech industry in the world, in the world, and we are still demonstrating that kind of vulnerability. So Sarah, I mean, David raises an interesting point here. I um, um, I would argue that things like hardening our communication nodes and 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 retrofitting our uh, vital energy supply infrastructure fits the definition of infra needed infrastructure spending better than <laughs> say subsidized Take daycare. Care. And yet, um, and yet there's been almost none of that kind of talk to this solar wind stuff. Um, what is it about this vulnerability that, that doesn't spark politicians into talking about actually publicly taking it seriously? I had Klon Kitchen on the remnant this week, and he actually says we do a lot of amazing things under the radar on this front, but not in terms of like making it so that one AT&T node throws a big chunk of the country into, uh, you know, uh, phone silence. So A, the reasons are we're doing more than you think, but not enough. B, uh, most of the members of Congress don't understand the issue and they don't want to wade into a topic where they will be embarrassed. Think these series of interconnecting tubes, the Ted Stevens uh, internet <laughs> comment at a hearing. Uh, or the comment <laughs> just from the last uh, second to last time Mark Zuckerberg was testifying where a senator asked, how do you make your money? And Mark Zuckerberg in this very <laughs> condescending voice said, Senator, we run ads. Uh, okay, well, yeah. Uh, three, they agree. That's the biggest problem. The reason that daycare is in the infrastructure bill is because it's a partisan issue. Therefore, it's a talking point. Therefore, you can tout it to your people and cause a little dust up where they take your side and it's to the ramparts. Nobody's against hardening our infrastructure and therefore it's not a politically winning argument for either side. If you compound that with the fact that they also don't understand it, uh, that's how you end up where we are right now. I think the letters of Mark and reprisal is interesting, but I'm curious, Jonah, you know, in that case, it, the mark is to attack, the reprisal is to bring it to the home port, where, generally speaking, you split the worth of the vessel with the U.S. government. What is the equivalent here? Bags of gold handed over in dark alleys that no one, that is that are uh, untraceable. Okay, Dogecoin. I'm hearing no, Dogecoin Doge and yeah. NFTs. That's what it <laughs> yeah, is. There you go. I mean, what you want is some... Look, I mean, look... So you just thing put a bounty Russia's, on their head, basically. What dark side is, is essentially... And uh, they basically have a letter of mark and reprisal from the Russian government. Um, and they're creating havoc in the West. They're extorting people. They're screwing with people. They're, they're also providing code that 
others can use, and they're exposing vulnerabilities that are useful for for the Russians to exploit later in in their planning. It seems to me that if we want some plausible deniability about some of that kind of stuff, we could be get creative about it too. And um, and Klein Kitchen, who likes this idea, who's a former CIA guy, um, he um, he argues that you know we actually do a lot of this stuff, but one of the things that um, the asymmetry is that we're a free society. So like when someone screws up one of our inf- institutions or pieces of infrastructure, you can't keep it secret in a free society. But when we do this kind of stuff to China or to Russia, uh, they don't want, they're terrified of telling their own people that the U.S. got one past them. Um, and they also don't want to make it sound like they, they're vulnerable. And so they keep it secret. But I just want more creativity out there than what we've, we've got now. And I'm sure we could figure out a way to compensate our privateers in ways um, that would work to everyone's benefit. Steve, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the other problems is, you know, you, you talk to folks who work in cybersecurity and they'll tell you that we're, we're so vulnerable in so many ways that escalating creates new risks. We don't even know where we're vulnerable. And if, if we escalate or we retaliate, um, you know, they're living in our systems in, in some cases. I had a fascinating conversation with um, a gentleman, this is probably four or five years ago, who uh, was really one of the pioneers of cybersecurity uh, for Wall Street. And he said, you know, at the beginning of this game, we used to do everything we could to, to keep the Chinese out of our systems because we didn't want them in, there were these vulnerabilities, we knew that they could cause problems. He said, and again, this is four or five years ago, the big challenge now, the Chinese live in our systems now, right? So they're, all, they're in there, they're in there all the time, they live in there. And the big challenge now is keeping them from taking too much and doing too much damage while they're in. But as he said, they're largely at the mercy of what the Chinese want to do. And you know, you, you think about the possibility that we're sort of living day to day um, in this pre 9-11 moment where we could suffer one of these devastating attacks at any minute and the the capability may be there right now. I'm not convinced that that's a reason not to retaliate. It's, it sounds sort of like giving up before you have the fight. Um, which I don't like, but I take seriously the claims that we are as vulnerable as they say we are. You just have to imagine that, you know, at some point in the not too distant future, we'll look back on this discussion and there'll be, you know, this, this public outcry in the aftermath of a major debilitating attack, nationally debilitating attack, devastating attack that takes a serious chunk out of our, our, you know, one of these, uh, systems that we're talking about and everybody will, lament the fact that we didn't do more. Well, now's the time to be doing more. So do more. Yeah. I mean, Steve, you are, I mean, singing my song on that pre 9-11 moment. Uh, This is something I've been just thinking about and obsessing about for, for some time is that this, that we, we are likely ending the honeymoon period, the decades long honeymoon period of no great power conflict which is an aberration in world history. I mean, it's not like we turned the corner and figured out how to be great humans and figured out how to manage great power conflict in a way that humanity never has before. Um, and I really do worry about that. And, and I worry about that also because 
if you really think about how do you defeat the United States of America, it has to, given our, a lot of our advantages we, ha- we have, it almost has to begin with the 9-11 Pearl Harbor style surprise attack. Because if you, we know you're coming, if we have warning, if we can prepare, if we can strike first, then that's that. But there is an enormous amount of capability that our opponents have, a closing gap in qualitative military technology that gives them the ability to strike first, to strike very, very, very hard, to achieve a limited objective, and then say, what are you going to do? Are you going to go, are you going to mobilize your country and risk massive escalation to reverse the gains that we just achieved? And, and you know, that's, that's something that, that's just sort of a known opposing military strategy right now. We know, we know that's where their head's at and we don't prepare for it. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, last topic, Israel. So yeah, from one great topic to another great topic, um, <laughs> So Hamas is lobbing hundreds and hundreds of uh, homemade rockets and and other projectiles at Israeli population centers, uh, arguably, well, I think almost certainly the largest attack since sort of the latter part of the Obama administration. Israel is responding with targeted strikes. Um, There's kind of want to come at this in three ways. Uh, First, we'll come at this sort of geopolitically and Steve, what's interesting to me about this, this is there's a deja vu here. We have seen this kind of confrontation before. What is interesting to me is it seems like the Israeli alliances that were achieved during the Trump administration are holding for now. And that seems to be something quite different. And do, A, is that do you feel like that is true? And B, what are the implications of that going forward? I do feel like that's true. I mean, in some ways, if you think about it geopolitically, there are things that are sort of dramatically different. And I think you've pointed to the most important one. And there are things that are, I think, I would say frustratingly similar. The things that are dramatically different is you're not seeing um, Israel's new allies whip up the so-called Arab street or jump in immediately to defend the kinds of things, the kinds of attacks on, on civilians that Hamas and others are are conducting. Um, the, the the frustratingly familiar 
part of this and it's early. So, you know, I, I don't want to get too far, far out, but I would say the, the Biden administration's response has been, um, you know, one that suggests that everybody needs to, to cool their heels, sort of creating equivalence between Israel uh, targeting terrorists sh- shooting at civilians with the terrorists shooting at civilians. Uh, and I, I don't think they're the same. The other thing that's, that I think is worth noting sort of on a geopolitical level is the uh, extent to which Iran lurks in the background of, of all of this. I mean, Iran funds Hamas. Uh, Iran funds Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Uh, the money that we returned to Iran in the Obama administration, even John Kerry had to admit that some of it was going to go to finance terrorism. Uh, you had uh, a, a Palestinian Islamic Jihad official, Rameza Halabi, say the rockets we're using to pound Tel Aviv, our weapons, our money, and our food are provided by Iran. I mean, they're not, they're not subtle about this. And, you know, you think about the ways in which the Biden administration seems intent on repeating the mistakes of the Obama administration with respect to Iran, despite the fact that they signaled in confirmation hearings and and elsewhere that they were going to be more deliberative and and more thoughtful. Uh, They seem not at all to be be doing that and and want to, again, as as the Obama administration did, treat Iran as a would-be ally rather than the enemy that it is. And I think sending these, sending the messages that the U.S. government, the Biden administration has sent in the first four months of the administration, I think emboldens the bad actors in the region. And it's, uh, it's, a, and it's a frustrating thing to say, and it's a frustrating thing to say again five, six years after we said it the first time. All right, Sarah. David, I want to talk this... about the politics of this. So That's have... what I was going to ask you about. Ooh, so so let me ask Is my it... question. Oh, fine. All right. That's what, okay, Sarah, what are the politics of this? Can you talk about that? (laughs) It's a great question, David. Wow. I I mean, that's, I prepare for this podcast. (laughs) So on the right, it's been very pro-Israel and it has turned into a bit of a partisan issue. So you had Andrew Yang this week tweet, the people of NYC will always stand with our brothers and sisters in Israel who face down terrorism and persevere. Then on Wednesday, he backtracked, saying he felt that my tweet was overly simplistic in my treatment of a conflict that has a long and complex history full of tragedies. Uh, My volunteers felt it failed to acknowledge the pain and suffering on both sides. I mourn every Palestinian life taken before its time, as I do for every Israeli. Support of a people does not make one blind to the pain and suffering of others. We've seen this before on the left. It has been increasing to the point that now you don't see it as often because nobody does that first tweet in the first place. Right. (laughs) Um, I think it is incredibly bad for the country of Israel that this has turned into a partisan issue in the United States. Um, You know, Joe Biden just got off the phone, had a very long conversation with Netanyahu. We're seeing reports from that. Uh, You have to be a little worried if you're Netanyahu at this point. Israel's holding its own. They're going to be fine. But... To the last thing you want is either your issue or your country to become the partisan volleyball in U.S. politics. It just can't turn out well for you. So the politics, the politics are bad for Israel. And I don't think a lot of American voters are deciding their vote based on it. 
Now, with the exception that, as we've talked about, those independents and the parties in the extreme, the left-wing extreme who controls the Democratic Party cares very much about it. It is a deal-breaker for them um, in the way that some other sort of issues like birthing people might be. But uh, it is not going to dictate winning elections. It will dictate those those base voters, and they're the ones who are giving money. So I think it is um, it's bad news for the Israelis more than anything. So Jonah, um, am I imagining things, or is there an awful lot of blatant anti-Semitism online right now? Um, I tweeted this. Uh, yesterday. And it's as a matter of law of armed conflict, it's about as true as you can get. And as a matter of morality, it's about as true as you can get. And I said, there's no equivalence either in morality or the law of armed conflict between firing unaimed rockets directly into civilian population centers and responding with aimed fire at militants hiding in civilian population centers. And many of the responses that I got were along the lines of, I wish Hamas had missiles so that they could aim better. Uh, what the heck, <laughs> Jonah? Yeah, so um, I, I, I want to sort of answer this question by wrapping around to the question you asked Steve for just two seconds when you talked about how the geopolitics of the region and how the alliances from the Trump administration seem to be holding. And then borrowing from Sarah's answer about the politics, one of the key takeaways here is that the progressive base of the Democratic Party and blue checkmark Twitter is um, more anti-Israel than the Arab League. And <laughs> that should tell you about where things are right now in a lot of ways. And we should uh, do the caveat that you can be a critic of Israel and not be anti-Semitic. But the problem, is, as Sarah was noting about this becoming a partisan issue, is that what gets washed away in this tale of good versus bad or good versus evil and all that kind of stuff are the actual facts on the ground. And, and as, you, as, you, as you say, David, I mean, this is a very old tendency to confuse arsonists with firefighters, which is what people do with Hamas and, and Israel. But the... Um, the reason for all of this has to do with very complicated stuff going on on the ground. The Palestinian Authority canceled some elections because they knew they were going to lose to basically Hamas types. And Hamas, uh, and, and you had this specific controversy about these housing, these tracts of land in Jerusalem that belonged to Jews in the 19th century and then were given to Palestinians by the Jordanian Authority. And this was being adjudicated in court. And the Palestinians freaked out about this just by even having a, a, a legal proceeding about this. And um, and Hamas sees this opportunity to uh, sort of show solidarity with the quote-unquote Palestinian street in Jerusalem, and they decided to lob a bunch of rockets into Israel. And um, the I, we, I know we try not to do media criticism here, but the way in which so much of the media criticism boils down to why can't both, and also the Biden administration, why can't both sides calm down and ratchet and pull things back is so grotesquely unfair to Israel because the way things get calmed down, the way things get pulled back is for them to stop lobbing rockets at schools, hospitals, buses, you know, downtown streets. And that way, you know, Bibi Netanyahu wouldn't be responding. And I, I, I will say 
well, you know, this has a long history of craziness in American politics, but Bibi Netanyahu, I'll say the, the, on the pro Bibi side, this idea that he orchestrated this to, for his own political purposes is lunacy. He's had plenty of opportunities to orchestrate wars that he has declined to do. Um, there was actually talk about Arab, Israeli Arabs joining the coalition government in Israel. Um, this is not what he needed. Um, and this, this sort of glib, he's a warmonger stuff is often borders just on the straight anti-Semitic stuff. At the same time, he deserves a lot of blame for accelerating the partisan nature of this because he so drew his lot in with Trump during the Trump administration that the signal, he, he, he cemented this idea that being pro-Israel means being Republican in ways well, and before that, that, remember he addressed the house yeah uh during the obama administration at the invitation of the republican house in a in a really <laughs> pretty direct confrontation with obama yeah and uh, you know and obama deserves some of it because he you know oh, it, yeah. it's one of these you know they're chickens and eggs as far as the eye can see on this stuff but at the end of the day the moral clarity of of israel's position you know is clear. You uh, every state has a right to to defend itself from from rocket attacks, and uh, the idea that Americans would tolerate Mexicans launching rockets into southern Texas um, because of the claim that Texas really belongs to Mexico, which is a colorable argument. Um, sorry, Sarah, um, <laughs> is is ludicrous, and it's just this idea that Israel isn't a normal country and shouldn't be allowed to behave normally. Well, you know, right. one of the things that I, I, I got Last a little, not David. a whole album side, not a whole album side, just a track, just okay. a track on one thing. Um, one thing that I don't think people understand is the extent to which Israel restrains itself in these responses. They look at the differing casualty counts. They look at the superior ability, uh, superior capability of Israeli weaponry, and they think that Israel is a bunch of bullies. I can tell you from personal experience, if the United States of America was involved in this combat, if the United States of America was involved in a similar situation and we employed the tactics we've employed in Afghanistan and Iraq, Gaza would be in a far worse condition, in a far worse condition. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in my newsletter for tomorrow. So I'm, I, th I think I've hit a check mark of almost, we've hit a check mark of almost every dispatch product in this podcast. But I'm going to show readers aerial photos of Mosul from 2015 and Mosul from 2017 after the Battle of Mosul, where American firepower was deployed to defeat ISIS. And you will see what Western weaponry does when it is unleashed to defeat terrorists. And that is not what Israel is doing. And so I think that's one of the things that I think is Israel is constantly laboring under this burden that says, that they are the bullies, that they are the big boy on the block, just pounding and pounding and pounding these poor, helpless Palestinians who are lobbing hundreds of rockets, when the reality is by every conventional method of urban combat in Western armies, Israel is re dramatically restrained. And we're going to end this podcast with some news you can use. Chick-fil-A is now being forced to limit the number of sauce packets it's giving out to its customers because of industry-wide supply chain issues. That is terrible news for those of us who love a great chicken nug pack. 
If it's a dark side hack, then we'd really pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. See you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.